You're listening to the Ollie at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about Ollie at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. In partnership with the UNT Alumni Association, the Ollie at UNT podcast presents the Alumni Spotlight Series, featuring exceptional alumni. This month's spotlight falls on noted UNT business alum, Frank Bracken Jr. Frank served as president of Hager Clothing Corporation from 1994 until 2006, the first and only non-Hager to be named as president. After concluding the sale of Hager to Infinity Partners, Frank chose to what I would loosely term as retire. I have often said, because it is so true, that the guests I have the pleasure of talking with never seem to retire in the usual sense. They just go from working very hard in their chosen professional fields to working very hard to serve their communities. Frank is no exception to this rule. He has served as chairman and for many years on the foundation boards of both Big Brothers Big Sisters of America and Big Brothers Big Sisters Lone Star. Due to his commitment in providing support to children across the nation who face adverse and challenging situations, Big Brothers Big Sisters honored him with their highest volunteer award, the Charles G. Berwin Lifetime Achievement Award, the top individual honor bestowed by the organization. Frank is currently serving on the Methodist Dallas Medical System Advisory Board and is an active alum with Sigma Nu Fraternity. His former directorship and board work have included Ennis, Hager, Online Vacation Centers, and Philanthropy World Magazine. Supporting and helping to make positive changes in the lives of others seems to be a common theme for you, Frank. UNT recognized your many contributions and activities with the university by honoring you as its distinguished alumni. Welcome, Frank. It's so good to have you here on the podcast. Thanks, Susan, for those kind words. I'm not sure I deserve those. Oh, I have no doubt you would deserve those and even more that I haven't included. I understand that you and your wife, Janet, who is also a UNT alum and avid community volunteer, chaired a $250 million capital campaign for UNT. First of all, thank you so much. And secondly, what motivates you to give so much of your time, your energy, and financial support to UNT? Well, it's not a short answer, but uh, let me begin by saying I'm not, I'm not doing this with you to talk about myself or Hager. What I'd like to do is try to prompt someone out there in the audience to be inspired or take away something they can use to advance their lives or their careers. Jan and I are constantly working to encourage more people to give back to society in some way. As I said to you, I set my sights pretty low. If I, if I can bat 1%, I, I 
feel great about converting anybody that will become more of a community volunteer. There are many passions out there for which people to choose. And we've chosen ours, but people can choose from, there are so many. I mean, you can, children happens to be one of ours, but you can choose the elderly, the poor, nature, animals, the environment. I mean, the list goes goes on and on, but I just beg people, choose one, <laughs> choose at least one. That is such an important message. It truly is because it's so important to the community to give back. And also, not only does it help the community, but I think it sets a great role model for young adults and the children because they see what you do when you're supporting the world that they live in. Well, one of the things we do is we work very hard at influencing our children and our grandchildren. I mean, those immediately around us. Now, we're not batting a thousand there either, by the way, but we keep working at it. I'll tell you why we're motivated. And I think many of the people who are listening would be motivated in the same way if they think about it. We give back in so many ways, and I'm not bragging about that, but we do because we've we've been so lucky and blessed in almost every way. I know everyone doesn't feel like they're the advantage. But if you see the people that we see in some of the work that we do and realize how disadvantaged they are and how unblessed they are, you would you will clearly understand what I'm talking about. And I just think it's it's a it's an obligation to give back. I agree with you so much. And I'll tell you, one of the comments that I heard from time to time, not from everyone, but from some people during COVID was that they were bored. And I have to say, and I'm sure you you would support me on this, that if A person does help someone that's disadvantaged or they spend their time giving to an organization that's reaching out for the needs here in the area or statewide or nationally or whatever the case may be. It truly is fulfilling and gives you a sense of purpose and a sense of satisfaction with yourself, certainly far beyond whatever boredom could give a person. I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, there's probably no better feeling in the world than to me, and I'm sure it would apply to many of your listeners, as then giving back in one way or another. I never realized until I was in my mid-20s that not everyone has been given great parents and great mentors. I thought everybody had those. I mean, that was naive, but I really, that's how I grew up. And I, that's, I thought that was just, it came with the territory. If I stop and reflect, I had wonderful parents. I had wonderful teachers. I had wonderful coaches and later wonderful mentors in business and in life. So now I don't take those things for granted. There was a time when I did. When Janet and I both became involved with charities and especially Big Brothers, Big Sisters, we didn't realize what an advantage we and others have with positive role models. All of those groups I mentioned, they were always positive role models. I really didn't have many negative role models in my life. And it was there that I discovered, especially through Big Brothers, Big Sisters, that there are thousands of children in this country today that have no positive role models. And as a matter of fact, the only thing they see are negative role models. I mean, they're drug dealers, thieves, prostitutes, con artists. I mean, some of the kids that we serve are are surrounded by that. And one adult coming into their life can make a huge difference. Yeah, it seems like it would be a true ripple effect because once a person affects a change in someone's life, some young adult, some teen, whatever, a child. And then as they grow up, they realize, hey, I can contribute too. And they become more productive members of society. And maybe they'll give back too to help. I even see your support of UNT in that way, because when you fully fund a school of UNT's caliber, 
you make a difference in the lives of students and then they graduate and they can make a difference in the lives of others as well. One of the most gratifying things that Janet and I do is uh, we do eight scholarships every year for the students in the PLP. Now, first of all, PLP is professional leadership program. And that's something I got involved with back in the early nineties. And it matches business executives with students and the students don't get into PLP unless they have a minimum of a three-point average. They don't receive our scholarships unless they have a minimum of a 3.5 average. And it's amazing what just one business person, because I want to tell you, I was probably as naive as anybody could be when I came out of UNT. The one thing I was missing is any, I mean, my dad had imparted some to me, but I probably wasn't listening. <laughs> the, but until I got involved in business and, and had some business mentors, I just didn't realize what life was all about. I, life was school and football to be up until that point, but it, it changes. I always tell kids, the easiest job you'll ever have in your life is going to college. I mean, you go to class 15 hours a week, you know, so even if you study 15 hours a week, that's only a 30 hour week. And uh, when you go to work, there are no 40 hour work weeks for college graduates. They're more 50 and 60. Kids learn that. Usually I had to learn it the hard way. I wanted to talk about a lot of these parents that we deal with. You know, my parents were always highly motivated and they motivated me. As a matter of fact, they, my dad was very demanding. Well, what we run into are kids that are not highly motivated and their, their parents aren't highly motivated. They may have some emotional issues or something like that. So the kids are not driven unless they're self-driven. Now, obviously, there are individuals in this world that are totally self-motivated and would overcome any and all obstacles. Janet's had three little sisters in the Big Sisters program and mentored many more young girls. When she went back to school to get her degree back in 2013 and 14, she mentored girls and classmates. She just, it comes naturally to her. And in every case, she gave them goals and they made themselves better. Sometimes the goals were not to become pregnant. Don't get on drugs. Graduate from high school, which no one else in your family has ever done before. You know, when I say don't become pregnant, that sounds like a no-brainer. But among some groups in our society, the girls, when they turn 13 and 14, it's almost a race to see if they can get pregnant, have a baby. And that, I mean, that's frightening because they, they've limited themselves in so many ways that... <laughs> I can't enumerate. At Big Brothers Big Sisters, though, back to something we were talking about earlier, we'd always ask people why they don't give back, because so many don't. As generous a country as we are and as many good volunteers as we have, a lot of people don't give back. And, and the answer, especially when you're mentoring children, I heard the answer, I'm not a saint. I drink. I don't go to church every Sunday. Well, neither do I. <laughs> so you don't have to be a saint to mentor a kid. I mean, none of, none of us are saints. None of us are perfect. So uh, to me, that might be more of an excuse than a reason. But some people, I think, really feel that way. They think I'm not good enough to be a mentor to some young child. And almost everyone is good enough. I think that's so true. I think many people, even people the age, the Ollie member age, 50 and above, they limit themselves because they feel insecure about what they have to offer and being able to offer mentor someone in a meaningful way. But I certainly find in what I do in interviewing, but even just in conversation, when you talk to people, they all have these hidden gems inside of them. They all have these wonderful talents. And certainly just by living a certain number of days, you gain a certain wisdom. I think mentorship, just being able to advise people of what we've gone through is so, so important and so critical. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. A lot of times we don't we don't take the time to find out what people can contribute. Almost everyone can contribute something, and most of us can contribute a lot. Actually, if you start if we start digging, you asked me about the capital campaign, which was actually very gratifying for us. That thing lasted. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, Gretchen Bataille recruited me to chair that campaign, and she was here. I guess she left in twenty twelve, and two weeks before. She actually was terminated. She asked me to chair the campaign, and I did not want to chair a capital campaign. I, I mean, I like to fundraise. I actually enjoy it, but I just didn't want, at my age, I didn't want to chair another capital campaign. So I, I said, Gretchen, I got to think about this. So I thought, and I talked to Janet, and I said, you know, I, I've never said no to Gretchen. I can't start now. So I went back and I said, okay. Two weeks later, the Board of Regents terminated her. And during the campaign, I went through four more presidents. We we had two interims and 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 a third that didn't last too long. And then so going through a capital campaign, a four-year capital campaign, and going through five presidents is not the right way to get it done. I can tell you, but we we were lucky enough to get Neil Smotris there at the end, and he helped us get to the finish line. But you asked a question about education at UNT and in the campaign. You know, at UNT, I received the education I could afford. <laughs> it was that simple. However, that's not the real reason I went to UNT. The real reason I went there is because then and now it has a terrific reputation in the science department for its pre-med program. And I didn't really want to be a doctor, but my dad wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> so it took me a couple of years to convince him that I really wanted to be a businessman. And so later I changed my major, but that's why I attended UNT. I only realized later that partially at the expense of the state, I got a good education. I received every bit of the education and in many cases better than my contemporaries that attended schools like SMU and TCU. And I teased them all the time, telling them that the school owes them money back because I got my education and every bit as good as theirs, maybe better for about half, even less than half what they paid. I guess the differential is a lot greater than that now. I think we did a little a little happy dance when my youngest son decided to go with the state school in New York. And he got a great education too. So I know what you're saying. No, you do a happy dance, and because a lot of times they don't realize it, they're actually getting a partial free ride. Even when you're not on scholarship, you're getting a partial free ride from the state and, and your neighbors. I was, I felt like I was every bit as prepared as any graduate that came from anywhere. As I got into business and ran up against other people and, and had, had to compete and contend with other people. I mean, I'm, I'm forever grateful to UNT and can continually try to give back so others can be just as fortunate. We have a lot of kids in this state that need our help, and we have a lot of kids at UNT that need our help, and we, we can never help enough. And you touched on something that I think is critical and is so very important. When you talked about starting out following your dad's idea for you with medical school, but realizing where your passion was in business. It's so important for people to follow their passions, even in giving back. It's important when you're attending a, a university and learning what you want to do for life, but also in terms of what you've been saying about giving back to the community, there is so much if you just find out where your passions lay. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, the list is endless of, of what, what you can choose. A recent example, I mentor a, a young graduate today who is an example of all of this. He came into life with many disadvantages. I mean, many, but he also had some loving parents that sacrificed much to give him and his siblings a, a better life. He was born in Pakistan. I mean, he was born into abject poverty and his parents to have a better life for their children, not for them. 
a, a better life for their children. He came here when he was three years old. The family was financially poor, but their character, I, I know them all. Their character was exceptional. His dad, who was capable of much more back in Pakistan in his native language, spent his career as a manager at a 7-Eleven so his children could go to school and they, they could be near the mosque and live the kind of life that, you know, it's actually the American dream. It's, it's people dream to come here. My mentee worked three jobs. Now, I can't imagine this. He worked three jobs at one time while attending UNT in order to afford his education. He graduated four years ago, and he did graduate in four years with honors, and he's now on a fast track at one of Dallas's biggest banks. No, did I, did I make that happen? No, but I helped, <laughs> and it's extremely gratifying. Recently, he called me, and my point here is you never know when children and mentees are listening. I mean, I found that in business, that you don't know when your employees are listening. I have people come to me today and say, do you remember when you told me back in 1980? And I say, no, I don't, <laughs> but they do. It's really important that, to be careful what you say and how you say it when you realize they're listening. But he said, recently he called me and he told me he was promoted again. I think about the third or fourth promotion he said. And I asked how that came about. And he said, I did what you told me. And I said, what did I tell you? <laughs> and what I had told him was, you know, kids jump around today in their jobs. I mean, my kids jumped around in their jobs, usually for a better job. But in my career, I spent an entire career with one company. Now, granted, that's a little unusual today. It wasn't so unusual in my day. I could not have stayed there if I hadn't done certain things. And one of those things was when I figured out after my first job as a salesman in Cleveland, Ohio, I figured out that my attention span in new jobs was about three years. So after three years, minimum of three years, I would start figuring out what else I could do. So I would go to management because I knew my job better than anybody. You know your job better than anybody. We all do. You know it better than your manager does. And I would go to management and I'd say, here's how I think I can expand my job. And I had really great management or really bad management. They might have listened to me. And uh, so he did the same thing. He went to his manager and said, I think I'm capable of doing more. And they promoted him <laughs> instead of going out and looking for another job. You know, I had many, many job offers when I was at Hager, many job offers. But rather than jump, I would see if I was more valuable to Hager. And uh, many, many times you just don't realize your own values. I was so gratified when he told me that. All I did was he said, I just listened to you. So be careful what you say. <laughs> I want to say this, though, because I've told some mentoring stories about Janet, about myself. They don't all turn out like a fairy tale. They're not all perfect. We have failures, but we tried. You say so many important things, Frank. And I'm like, I can go off in all these different directions. It's just wonderful. First of all, is the is the influence that people have on people every day without even realizing it. Just a comment a teacher makes or something you say to a child or a person going through a crisis. It's amazing. That's so true. The effect you can have on someone that just does that nudge in their life and, and changes the direction that they're going to. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know. My, my wife's better at it than I am, but I mean, she's, it, she's sort of that kind soul that makes everybody feel important <laughs> one way or another. I'm not always that great at that. Sometimes I'm a critic. <laughs> I don't know. You're saying some pretty good things today, I got to say. And the other is about changing. You know, you, you realized you had three years 
where your main focus would be centered on something in three years, and then you get a little gypsy in your soul and you're ready to take on another project. And what a great thing that is to share. I love that. Thank you. That's good for me too, because I love to get into things, but then I like to get into other things too. And it's good. That's a great piece of advice. Well, and the other thing I would say is, you know, everybody's not capable of rising all the way to the top of the company. They just weren't prepared. They're not, they don't have it in them, but they can rise to their highest level, whatever that is. And, and sometimes you can do it at the same company, but that, that's not really my point. My point is to always know when you've had enough of something. And, and, you know, some people can sit in a job their entire lives and never be bored. Well, that wasn't me. And that's not, it's not most UNT graduates either. Okay. Sure. It's an individual thing. And also for giving back to the community, if you're giving back in one area, it might be time after a certain period of time, look around, see what else there is to do. The needs are endless. I'll have to tell you this story. And I, I probably didn't plan to tell you this, but I'll tell you this story because I became involved with charity when I was 25 years old and living in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. And my dad, the only people that would ever come visit you in Cleveland are your parents. <laughs> the, <laughs> My, my dad and uh, mom would come, you know, several times a year. And my dad was sitting down with me and he said, um, son, and he was not a great philosopher. He, he was a man of few words. So when he said something, I listened and he said, son, what are you doing to give back to the community? I was about 26 years old. And I said, well, let's see. I traveled a lot back then. I mean, it was, it was four days a week. And so I said, well, let's see. First of all, I'm raising a family. I was trying to get credit for that. I guess everybody does that. <laughs> I'm raising a family. I said, I'm teaching a Sunday school class. I'm coaching two Little League football teams. And he said, no, no. He said, every one of those people are just as fortunate as you. I'm talking about giving back to less fortunate. So, man, I started scratching my head. And I just, and so he made me think. So I won't go, name, name all the boards that I've served on in my lifetime, but I started at 26 in Rocky River, Ohio, because children are my passion. It was always boys club, girls club, boy scouts, all of those. And I, and once again, I would tell them when I, when I joined, I'd say, I'll be here about three years. And so tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. A lot of them were just stumped when you asked them that question, because they just wanted to, they thought they just wanted a good board member. Well, in 1994, Big brothers, big sisters came to me and said, we'd like for you to join our board. And I said, well, your mission is wonderful. It's, it's something I, I could and would do. But you, if I join, you're only going to have me about three years. I actually spent, I won't even enumerate, but I, 20 years later, I was still serving on the national board. But I asked them, and there's a little lesson here. From, it was a lesson for me. I said, well, tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And they said, they gave me all the pat answers. Be a good board member. Do you know, I said, no, no, no. That's, the board's doing that work. I want to know what you want me to do. And they said, well, let us think about it. One was, a, a, one was the CEO of the organization. Another was a, a, the chairman, the, an attorney. So they said, let us think about it. Well, they came back and they said, we know what we want you to do. And we want you, we don't have a lot of people like you, meaning C-level executives on their board. We want you to get more people like you on the board. I said, I can do that. Well, but the reason I didn't leave in three years is because I will tell you what I learned. Return on investment. I'm a big guy with return on investment of my time spent. And there is no better organization. And I know I sound like a preacher. There is no better organization 
than big brothers, big sisters. And I'll tell you why. It took me a while to figure this out. All the other organizations, we would have one adult on 20, 30 kids. I mean, boys and girls clubs, all those things. It, but it, And they're great and wonderful. And they made an impact on those kids. But not like one adult can on one kid. It's the one-on-one attention that is just phenomenal. And once again, it doesn't always work, but it, it has a high probability of working. So I thought, well, I'm going to spend money and time. It's going to go right here where I get the return on investment. So I sound like a preacher, but forgive me. Nothing to forgive. I have a question for you. For the listeners who are thinking, oh, I love this. This sounds great. This is what I need to do more of. What advice would you have for them? How do they get started? Where do they look? How do they know what they might like to do? Well, that's a great question. Many, many ways. Once again, it depends on who they are and who what their passions are. You know, our churches can't get enough volunteers. You know that. But none of our organizations have enough volunteers. And I always say everybody can give something, whether it's time, talent, treasure. We ask, we try to encourage people to do all of the above, by the way. But it, but if you only do one of those, you know, to me today, and I didn't, I didn't get involved with volunteering by getting on the Internet. But my gosh, there's so much information on the Internet today. I, I think I think that's and you know, we're all sitting at home. I think that's a great place to start. But. Uh, and the other thing is, if you don't know how and, and you don't like that, call me, okay? <laughs> they can get in touch with me. <laughs> I'm sure you could put them in touch with some very worthy causes in a big hurry. Because I find, and we had a little conversation about this before we got on air, that as you had said, if you want to ask someone to do something, ask a busy person, it's because... People who are motivated to help are always the same people that show up at the different committees, the different board meetings, the different fundraisers, the different activities. That's so true. But we need more busy people, less people who are discouraged by everything and rah, rah, the life is bad and times are bad and people are this and people are that. There's so much more. There's so much light happening in this world. And I call them people of light because they're the people that are around, scattered around that are making such a difference in the lives of others. Well, that's really great. Back in business, there were two things. I I learned the hard way. I have to admit, I learned the hard way. But I would tell our executives and our HR department, I would say, hire for two things, intelligence and attitude. You were talking about the attitude, the glass half empty, half full. I mean, there were people, I, I hired people that weren't as bright as they had needed to be for that job. And I hired people that, that just had a, a basically a negative attitude. And I failed. I tried to kept trying to change them. You know, I failed every time. So I, I constantly say, get the smartest people you can with the right attitude and they'll run through walls for you. you know? Frank, you've mentioned people making a difference in people's lives and experiences that affect other people. Do you recall any professors or standout experiences at UNT? And I also understand you were a Mean Green football player. <laughs> I have to let that in. <laughs> I was a Mean Green football player, but for a short period of time. I had a great high school career. We won a state championship. I'm, I'll be with all my teammates early next month. But UNT, I played as a freshman and got a really bad knee injury and never played again. I don't brag about that. I, in business, I used to ask people to come in my office. And, and unfortunately, you know, females my age, a lot of them never had any exposure to sports. So it, the answers were kind of pathetic. And a lot of males never had the chance to. But I'd, they'd come in and I'd say, what's your idea of teamwork? Well, it's everybody helping everybody. I, mean, I, got, I had that answer probably more than 50% of the time. Everybody helping everybody. 
That's exactly what teamwork is not. Teamwork is everybody doing their job and counting on the person on either side of them to do their job. Good definition. I like that. Yeah, I'll tell you, I have a lot of professors and teachers and coaches that I remember over the years, but at UNT, two always stood out. And there are others. I could talk about them too, but two of them always stood out and for, for specific reasons. Roe Metter, who taught transportation, he made one of the driest subjects possible very interesting. <laughs> and transportation, you know, truckload, less than truckload. I mean, it was, it was crazy terminology I thought I would never, ever use. Uh, I thought it'd never come into play in my business career. It became very valuable in my training program at Hager. About halfway through my training program, which was supposed to be about a year, it was a, a management training program, it was supposed to last about a year, it was becoming very boring because it, I, I got it in about the first two months. <laughs> and then one of the executive VPs, who actually was a lifelong mentor to me, who passed away a couple of years ago, he came to me and he said, Frank, I think you probably got this training figured out. And I said, you better believe it. He said, well, why don't you do this? He said, how about coming over? I'm, I'm a little shorthanded. Why don't you come over and, for the rest of your training period and work as my assistant in credit and transportation? Now, my God, here comes transportation. I mean, I probably don't know how I would have done that job. And I also had a credit course in, in business school, you know, so I was well prepared. The other guy that jumped out at me and he jumped out at everybody. He was my first marketing professor. Ed Cox, and everybody loved this guy, but they didn't love him because he was easy. He, he was actually very tough, he was, but he made everything relevant and he made marketing exciting. I mean, I really got excited about marketing when I, when I walked out of his class. And one of the reasons though, was he had many, many years of business experience before he became a, a teacher. I mean, he just had great credibility with us. And, and these are the two professors that I mentioned when I made my acceptance speech as a distinguished alumnus at, at UNT. Something I'm very proud of, and one of my fraternity brothers is receiving that same award. And I'm going with another fraternity brother, Dr. Gant, who also received that award. And interestingly enough, the one that's receiving it tomorrow night, he, he was a biology chemistry major, just like me. He started out, he finished up as a biology chemistry major, and he made his, his life and his fortune in transportation. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. Those two professors, among others, they taught me how to apply my education to business. They didn't just teach me, you know, what was in the book. But honestly, I'll tell you what they didn't teach me. And I, and I, I like to talk about this, learning how to treat people. You know, most people naturally treat customers well, although you wouldn't know it when you get customer service on, on the phone sometime or and you go to India or Pakistan or someplace. But most people, they, they know you're supposed to treat customers well. But I would always tell our people, you treat our customers as, as well as you can, and you treat our employees and suppliers equally well. Now, I want to tell you, a lot of people get two of those three right, but they don't get treating their suppliers right. They, you know, they, they're afraid it shows weakness or something. It, does, it doesn't show weakness at all. You'd be surprised how that, that can pay off. So, it, But I had to learn that in business. And sometimes, many times, I think I learned by watching people that, that weren't doing it correctly. And I said, that's not the right way to do this. Yeah, it just takes so little to be nice. It's just such a little effort. It seems like sometimes when you see people that are so grumpy and they're frowning, you think that's got to be a lot of energy there. I mean, it just takes very little energy to just be pleasant to people and respectful. It's very important yeah. to be respectful. 
dead at night. We, we run from those people. Exactly. <laughs> we, we don't walk away. We run. <laughs> exactly. That's smart. Life's too short to surround yourself with that kind of person. Exactly. Well, you've had such an incredible career, and we haven't touched much on the company that you work for, Hager. I know Hager is like a household word. Everybody knows Hager Slacks, Hager Clothing. I had no idea about the company and the many firsts that it had. I mean, it's had so many firsts in the garment industry, but also it's even been referenced in pop culture. I mean, it's really something. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the first because uh, one, is it true about them coining a word that we all use? I'll let you talk about that word from Hager. That's so cool. It was certainly before my time, but I know all about it because Ed Hager, who was one of the two sons of the founder, and by the way, our founder was a Lebanese immigrant who came here in 19, we started the business in 1926. They're almost going to have a hundred year anniversary here in a few years. Uh, no, Ed Hager, he, he was the marketing guy before me. He, so he worked with our, our local advertising agency and you can't imagine, I mean, this is almost ancient history, but you can't imagine how much trousers, because that's what they call them back in the forties and fifties. You can't imagine how much trousers have changed over the years. And so he wanted to somehow, they wanted to make the product differently and they wanted it to be worn differently. And jeans were really not that popular when, when Ed did this. He and the, I think the advertising agency came up with the thing of slacks for slack time. And honestly, when I went to work for Hager, the sign on the building said Hager slacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to know where that word came from, because it's just everybody calls them slacks now. Even women's. I mean, they're all slacks. Yeah, of course. Definitely yeah. There. And I also had no idea about the patriotic role that Hager had in supplying uniforms during World War II. And once again, I don't want you to think I was there then, okay? Oh, you're far too young, Frank. They they actually provided, oh, I, I don't know the millions, but I mean, they, they spent, we ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they tell me, producing uniforms for our military. And I know many other companies did too. We weren't alone. You mentioned those that happened when you weren't there, but there were a lot of firsts that happened when you were there. For one, the size strip and the fact that you hold a patent to some of these firsts that Hager has. Yes, 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 that's true. Let me mention some others, though, that people will not even think of. Once again, before my time, but not too far before my time, trousers, men's trousers were always open bottom, and your tailor made them fit to length. Hager started marketing pre-hemmed slacks. And later on, as a Christmas idea, they did package slacks. So the lady could just walk in or anybody could just walk in, pick up the, the waist and inseam that they wanted and, and walk out the door. And also... We actually take a lot of ribbing for this one now, but it was it was it swept the industry like crazy. It was uh, right after I came to the company, they introduced double knits. Women wore double knits. Men did not wear double knits, and I never will forget going out and selling double knits. I had a couple of funny stories because I was in Ohio. Those double knits, the the gauge on them, I, you could probably see through them. Actually, it was they were so loosely knitted, and the colors were the women's colors. So. But I sold them and I would, in order to sell them, I'd walk into my dark department stores in downtown Cleveland with a pair of double knits on. I felt like I was naked on the street, <laughs> was coming through, but I would walk in just strutting and bragging about how great these double knits were, but they, they really were great. But the size strip was, I learned this in Ohio, by the way, I got the idea in Ohio in the late 1880s, 
Levi came out with Dockers, 1986, I believe. And they took a huge chunk out of our market share and everybody else's market share. I used to needle our marketing team, and I was part of it. And I'd say, well, Dockers are number one, and we're tied for 10th with eight other companies. And they would say, oh, Frank, that's not true. We're second. And I'd say, yeah, but we're a distant second. We just kept playing around and trying to get, get into that. What we were asking people to do is take 100% cotton pants and stack them like you see in the stores today. They're stacked. But one customer could go in there, and I used to say they made spaghetti out of it. If, if you've done this for your kids. You go in there, you find your size, and, and all, the rest of it looks like it was never stacked. So I saw a company, I won't name the company, back in Ohio that had put their brand, when, when trousers were hanging in a, in a rack, just hanging, they put their brand on a little strip around the, the edge. And I thought, you know, if we could put our size on one of those things. So I sent the advertising guys off to put it together and they did. And I think you said something about, we, uh, we got a patent on it in 2002, which is my patent. We actually started, we filed for that patent in 1990. That's how long it takes to get a patent. Wow. <laughs> And and we did that in 25 more countries. And of course, now, as you know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter where you go, Asia, Europe, I mean, size strips, that's it. Well, I've got, thank you. You made my life so much simpler, <laughs> being able to just look at those size strips. Well, I'd have to sell a lot of pants too. <laughs> there was another thing I discovered about Hager that I thought was very interesting. Those gold jackets that you see people wear when they're inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, those came from Hager, did they not? They still do today, even with an ownership change. I think we've been making those since, well, it was actually when I was a salesman. It was back in the, in the 70s, I think, we started making those. Ed Hager was responsible for that. And, we, and I called the CEO the other day and I said, are we still making those things? And he said, oh, yeah, we made them. <laughs> but we never advertise it. We never take a lot of credit. As a matter of fact, I think it was back in 2001 or two, a couple of guys came to see me from the NFL. And I had no idea what they were coming for. I just knew they were kind of big shots from the NFL. And they came in and they said, we just want to thank you for providing these jackets for all of these years and never asking us for anything. They said, don't you need Super Bowl tickets? Don't you need something? Don't you need some autographs? And I, and I said, that's not why we did that. You know, we, we have plenty of ways to get Super Bowl tickets and all that stuff. No, we just did it to because we wanted to do it. And of course, we all love football. We all love pro football. So it was easy for us to do. And they're such a simple now. Like I said, people see them. No idea where they came from. Yeah, I served on the National Big Brothers board with Lynn Swan back, oh, maybe 10 years ago now. And Lynn, who's a great speaker, he was running for Senate in Pennsylvania, which he, he ran as a Republican. He failed miserably. But he wore his gold jacket as he was making a speech at our at our annual banquet. And then he made a big deal out of flashing the Hager logo inside his jacket, which which I found very, that was very gratifying. And he surprised me completely. I had no idea he was doing that. That's terrific. Also, another thing that I found that I thought was very interesting was how Hager is such a common name for people that it's been picked up in popular culture, like the Simpsons, or uh, I believe there was a reference to Jimmy Connors giving a pair of Hager slacks as a peace offering to Rod Laver, one of the people that he played against. Yeah, we have a lot of stories like that. We really, we really do. I'll tell you, this is interesting because this happened this last Sunday. 
one of my daughters-in-law sent me a clip from, uh, I think she texted it to me, from a current show that I wasn't even familiar with, The Goldbergs, and which I guess is a pretty hot show. And they, the lady, it's it set in the early 90s, early mid-90s, and the lady said, oh, there's nothing that turns me on more than a man at a pair of hater slacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm going to start looking for these now. I'll probably start seeing it all over, you know, now that I know. That is wonderful. Oh, Frank, this has been awesome. You have got such a diverse and extensive career and background. And I have to say, just knowing what you and Janet do to help others is inspirational to me. And I'm sure it's inspirational to other people. And I have no doubt that that your message to get people up and out and moving to help their community has to have been heard by some of the listeners. I certainly don't know how it couldn't be. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I haven't talked to you about? Just underline what you said is I, I hope somebody listened. Okay. And, and somebody gets up and, and volunteers or gives or does something to help other people because they're so, I mean, there's so many needs out there and you know this Susan, as well as I do. I mean, I think people, a lot of my peers and a lot of my contemporaries, they kind of turn a blind eye to it. I mean, I talk to people that just like us, and I can, they listen, but they don't heed. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, it's a tough sales pitch because you have to give your time, you have to give your money, you have to give your talent, but it's worth it. Trust me. That's, that's my bottom line is it probably the most saddest. Oh, I, I had a, I, I will tell you this story. Quite a few years ago, one of the JC Penney executives that I had worked with retired and he immediately moved to Florida. He checked in with me and he was talking to me and uh, probably a year later and, uh, I said, how are you doing, Ray? He said, I called to thank you. I said, for what? He said, for getting me involved with Big Brothers. He was on, he got him involved with the local board. He said, for getting me involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. He said, nobody can play golf seven days a week. He said, <laughs> he said, I don't get any great gratification out of playing golf, but I get a lot of, because he got involved with Big Brothers down there in Florida. So those come along, it makes you feel really good. That's awesome. And I'm sure if there's been any scientific research done, it's got to keep you younger and it's got to keep your brain going longer. So I thank you, Frank. It has been a real honor. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks, Susan. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Frank Bracken. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 